In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Well, good morning. My name is Adam, if I don't know you, and it's great to have you with us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you're joining us online. Today, we are kicking off a brand new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, if I asked you, what is your favorite story in the Bible? I reckon that 
a number of you, would, the answer would be Ruth. The Old Testament story of Ruth, and for good reason. It is an incredible story. It's a story of love, a bit of romance, loss, sacrifice, betrayal, redemption. It is an amazing story. Now, without giving too much away, it also has a classic, we might say Hollywood ending. The kind, rich bachelor eventually marries the poor outsider from the wrong side of the tracks. It's an amazing story. But Ruth is far more than just a love story. It's not the Bible's answer to pride and prejudice. It has a far deeper purpose than that. The story of Ruth actually shows us God's purposes for the whole world. Ruth actually leads us to the coming of God's Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, Ruth is one of the best short stories ever written. But this is not just about a woman finding a husband or a widow, a family. It is about the royal line that leads to Jesus. And this is why we've chosen to do Ruth for Advent this year. Now, if you don't know what Advent is, it's a word that literally means coming or arrival. And it's the four-week season leading into Christmas where we set aside some time to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, to give thanks for his first coming, which is what we remember and celebrate at Christmas time, but also to look forward to his second coming. And this is why we're exploring Ruth. But I know that when you think about Christmas, you might not automatically think about the Old Testament story of Ruth. Well, I hope that by the end of this series, you'll come to see that this story perfectly prepares our hearts for the arrival, the coming of Jesus. It introduces us to some of Jesus' ancestors, and it shows us how God worked in the world to prepare the way for his Son and our Saviour. Really looking forward to diving into this together. And if you haven't yet already, make sure you grab one of the growth group guides. This will help you get more out of our study of the book of Ruth. As Edmund mentioned, it also has the family worship questions, which you can do together with your family. Let me also encourage you, as we work through this series, to read the book of Ruth. I mean, over these coming weeks, if you're not already reading something in the Bible, let me encourage you to read and to reread Ruth. You're going to get so much more out of it if you know the details of the story and of what is happening. Now, because the story is so amazing, we're just going to dive into it together today. We're going to walk through it and we're going to point out some lessons along the way. I don't have three points like I normally do. Sorry for all the note takers. We're just going to dive into this story, discover its richness, richness and learn its lessons. So, let's begin our journey into the book of Ruth. Now, like most good stories, the opening line of Ruth is incredibly significant. It gives us some important context. Here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled. And so, it gives us immediately the historical setting. And this might not mean very much to you, but it should stop us in our tracks. The days when the judges ruled, this was one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. 
It was the period after Israel had been rescued from Egypt, wandered through the wilderness and entered into the promised land. They've come into the land, but it's the period before they have a king to rule over them. And we read about this period in Israel's history in the book of Judges, the book immediately before Ruth. Now, I'm sure you all remember that back in 2017, we did a series through the book of Judges. And we called it Life in Chaos, because that's exactly what it was. It was a very dark, very chaotic, very dangerous time. It was a time of violence and anarchy, civil unrest, spiritual darkness. It was an incredibly dark time. And it was really summarized by the final line of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is the dark backdrop for the beautiful story of Ruth. And this historical setting, it shows us, it teaches us a couple of important truths. Firstly, it teaches us that the story of Ruth is a historical story. It's not fictional, it's not a parable, it's history. It happened at a certain time and place in history, around 1100 years before Jesus arrived on the scene. Secondly, it teaches us that God is at work for good, even in the darkest of days. That God is at work for good even in the darkest of days. Now, one of the curious things about Ruth is that God isn't mentioned very much in the story. The main characters will talk about God a number of times, but the narrator, the author, only mentions God doing something twice. And yet, we get to the end of the book and we realize that God has been at work and active behind the scenes. That God has been at work in very subtle ways. This is what theologians call God's providence. It's not his visible hand of power, but it's God's invisible hand of providence. It's God's hidden hand. And Ruth helps us to see that God is in control, even when it looks like he is not. Ruth helps us to see that God is present and at work, even when it looks like he is absent. And this can be, I think, very encouraging to you and I. We might look around today and we might think that the days are dark. We see cancel culture and tribalism and political turmoil and a pandemic. And we might be tempted to think, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why won't you fix all of these things that are going on? Well, Ruth will help us to see that dark days are not a sign that God is absent because God is at work for good even in the darkest of days. And the difficult days of Ruth, the dark days of Ruth, they actually got even worse. They were made worse by another problem we read about in verse 1. This is what we read. There was a famine in the land. Now, this probably doesn't strike us as it should, but because remember, this wasn't just any land. This was the promised land. This was the land that God had promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. Do you remember how it was described? A land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this land has become dry and barren. And the question is, why? 
Well, we're not explicitly told in the text. It could be a result of injustice, the, the injustice that was going on at that day. It could be a result of God's judgment, which he had warned them about, that if they would turn from him, they would experience famine. Either way, these are dark, difficult days for the people of God. And for us to see just how difficult it was, the story zooms in on a particular family. It shows us the experience of this family. And we meet them in verses 1 and 2. The husband's name was Elimelech, the wife, Naomi, and they have two boys named Marlon and Kilion. And they are from the town of Bethlehem. Now, there was nothing particularly special about this family. They were an ordinary family living in the ordinary town of Bethlehem. And in fact, Bethlehem was very, very ordinary. It was a tiny, small, insignificant village in the middle of nowhere. Maybe the circle has moved and it's now crossing out Bethlehem, which is helpful, isn't it? That's Bethlehem right there. Now, Bethlehem, we say when someone is from nowhere, we say they're from Whoop Whoop. Bethlehem was basically Whoop Whoop. It's nowhere. And yet, here we are, thousands of years later, on the other side of the world, and I bet that you've heard of Bethlehem. I bet you've even sung songs about Bethlehem. Why? Because this tiny, small, insignificant village, it would be the scene of a world-changing event. It's not just the context for the uh, events of Ruth. It's not just the hometown of King David. It's also the birthplace of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It, it is the place where God chose to make his advent, his entrance, his coming into human history. It was the scene of the very first Christmas. And this again teaches us another important lesson that God chooses to do his most important work in the most unlikely of places and through the most unlikely of people. That God chooses to do some of his most important work in unlikely places and through unlikely people. I mean, Bethlehem was the most unlikely place for God to make his entrance into human history. Ruth, as we will come to see, is the most unlikely person to be included in the genealogy of Jesus. And yet, this is exactly what happens. God uses this place and these people in his plan. Because God works in unlikely ways and through unlikely people. Now, this is very important for us to realize because we live in a day and an age that prioritizes the big, the bold, the bright, the beautiful, the famous. I mean, we are attracted to the spectacular, the impressive, the large. But the book of Ruth teaches us something different. It teaches us what uh, author Zach Eswine says, that greatness and obscurity are not opposites. Let me say that again. Greatness and obscurity are not opposites. You don't have to be well-known, have thousands of followers on social media to be great in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be extraordinary to be used by God. In fact, what stands out about the book of Ruth is just how ordinary it is. There's nothing particularly spectacular or miraculous that happens. There's no parting of the sea. There's no manna from heaven. There's no ten plagues. It's an ordinary family living in an ordinary town 
leading an ordinary life. And yet God is present and active and at work powerfully because God works in and through the ordinary. He works even in a town like Bethlehem and even during a famine. Now, what you might not know about Bethlehem is that it literally means the house of bread. Beth, house, lehem, bread or food. And so the irony is that the house of bread has no bread. And so this forces this particular family to make some tough decisions. And we see what they decide to do at the end of verse 1. They went to live for a while in the country of Moab. They leave Bethlehem in search of food. And at one level, this is totally understandable. Elimelech wants to provide for his family. And so he goes to Moab where he hears there is food. This is probably what you and I would do as well. But if an ancient Israelite was reading this, if they sat down to read Ruth for their morning devotion, they would choke on their wheat bix at this point. They would go, Moab? Seriously, they went to Moab? You see, the nations of Israel and Moab, they weren't exactly friends. In fact, they had a long, complicated history. And Moab had a reputation for shocking religious practices. It's not exactly the place you would go if you want to raise a godly family. And so this is not just like us deciding to move to Melbourne. This is more like us deciding to move to Syria to live under ISIS. This is a decision with massive spiritual ramifications. And again, there's a sense of irony at play here because the name Elimelech, the father of the family, the one who decides to take them to Moab, his name means God is my king. And you see, he's not living up to his name here in this regard. He's taking his family from the land of promise and he's moving them to the land of compromise. He's searching for security apart from God. Now, this is not the main point of the story, but it's worth us reflecting for just a moment. How do we make our decisions? What factors do we consider important when we decide what to do? When we decide where to live? What's in our calendar? Where we spend our money? Whether we take the job? Do we decide, you know, based purely on comfort and security? If the pay is better, or if the, the suburb is nicer, the home is bigger? Or do we take into account spiritual health? The, the spiritual health of ourselves and our families. Now, we don't want to be too harsh on Elimelech here. He probably just wanted to provide for his family. He probably had the best of intentions. But good intentions can get swept away very easily and we can end up where we don't want to go. And we're not, we don't know how long Elimelech planned to stay in Moab. Verse 1 says that they, uh, it was to only be for a while. But by verse 2, we're told that they lived there. They settled down. And by the end, they're in Moab for 10 years. And it costs Elimelech more than he ever even dreamed. He took his family to Moab to find food, to find life, but in the end they find only death and despair. This is what we read in verses 3 to 5. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, that's Orpah, not Oprah, and the other, Ruth. 
After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is an absolute tragedy for Naomi. She's left her home. She's in a foreign land, and now she's lost her husband and her two boys. She's on her own. This is rock bottom. And it's even worse than we realize. Because, see, to be a widow in that day, it meant to have nothing. No land, no income, no Centrelink. She was totally destitute and totally on her own. And she was an older woman, and so she had no chance to remarry. This is rock bottom. It would be like for us, not only losing our family, but losing our savings, our homes, our superannuation, everything. And so Naomi comes to a fork in the road. She comes to a defining decision. Would she stay in Moab? Or would she go home to Bethlehem? Well, when she hears the news that there is food in Bethlehem again, it really makes the decision easy for her. And she, along with her two daughters-in-law, set out to go back to Bethlehem. But somewhere along the way, on the, the dusty road, they stop for an important conversation. You see, Naomi is an Israelite. She's going home. She's lost everything, but she's still going home. For Ruth and Orpah, they're leaving their home, their people, their history, their ancestry. But most importantly, they're leaving their chance to marry another Moabite man. And the cost of this begins to dawn on Naomi. And so she begins to urge these two women to go back, to go back to Moab to find a husband. Now, for Ruth and Orpah, to go back and find a, a husband, this would seem like the sensible choice. This would make sense. After all, they were going to find it difficult to find a husband in Israel. God's law prohibited his people from marrying those who worshipped foreign gods. And so Naomi tries to convince them to go back. At first, Ruth and Orpah resist, but eventually Orpah realizes that Naomi is right. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, she turns around, and she goes back to Moab. And it seems sensible, it seems right, which is what makes Ruth, Ruth's actions so shocking. See, Ruth does something that resonates through history. Verse 14, but Ruth clung to her. Clung to her. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 2 to describe the bond of marriage. Ruth is holding on to Naomi and she's not letting go. She's abandoning everything to re remain with Naomi. Her home, her family, her gods. She is going to live among the people of God even though she is not one of them. One commentator says there was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. I mean, Ruth is leaving everything behind. And the question is, why? Why would she go back to Bethlehem? It doesn't seem to make sense. It's not going to make her life any easier. In fact, it's probably going to make her life more difficult. Why would she cling to Naomi like this? Ruth tells us herself in her stunning response in verses 16 to 17. Where we read, Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you 
or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth is going back, not because she is devoted to Naomi, though she is, but most deeply because she is devoted to Yahweh, to God. Sinclair Ferguson is a commentator. He paraphrases Ruth's response this way. Listen, I have been converted. Stop urging me to go back. Did you hear me? I have been converted. This is what Ruth means when she says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. It literally means your people, my people, your God, my God. She's not just talking about the future. She's talking about the present. She's saying, Naomi, because your God is my God, your people are my people, and I'm coming back with you. See, somewhere along the way, Ruth came to faith in God. And she's leaving everything behind to follow him. Her land, her family, her history, her gods. And this really is a great picture of conversion. Of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just about praying a prayer one time, but that's a great and an important first step. It's about trusting him and following him with everything you have. It's about leaving all else behind to have Jesus. And this is really the choice before all of us. In many ways, we are a bit like Orpah and Ruth. There was nothing kosher about us when we were born. We were outside of God's family and we were outside of God's grace. But God has met us on the road. Jesus has come from heaven to earth to lead us home, to bring us home, to invite us to come home. Now we can choose not to come as Orpah did. We can turn back to the security, the comfort of our old life. We can spend our lives solely focused on the here and the now. Our careers, our families, our homes, and and so forth. And up to a point, this way of life will probably work. I mean, we're not told what happened to Orpah after she went home. Maybe she did meet Mr. Wright, and maybe she did have a stack of children, and maybe she lived happily ever after in Moab. But by returning to Moab, Orpah missed out on the one thing of true and lasting value. A living relationship with the one true living God. See, Orpah made what looked like the sensible choice, but she missed out on what truly matters. She failed to find relationship with God. And the saddest part is she might not have even realized what she was missing out on. But Orpah's road is not the only way that's open to us. There's also the way of Ruth. See, Ruth made the decision to go the way of faith, to follow the path that led to the living God. Now, that's not an easy path, and it doesn't even look like the sensible path to most people. There's a reason the Bible calls it the narrow road. It's difficult. It's paved with pain and loss and and trials and tribulations and temptations. It, It means dying to ourselves. It means laying down our lives. It means acknowledging our emptiness without God. But it's the only path that leads to life. It's the only way to true and lasting life. And it's open to all who would put their trust in Jesus. So the question that this story forces us to answer 
is will you leave behind Moab to follow Jesus? Will you leave behind everything for him? Will you stay with him when the going gets tough? When the future looks very uncertain, will you keep trusting him? There was a time in Jesus' life when the going got tough. His teaching got controversial and heaps of people started to walk away from him. And Jesus turned to his 12 disciples, his closest friends, and he said to them, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him. Of course, it was Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this might be the reminder that you need today. If life is bitter, if sticking with Jesus feels hard, remember that he has the words of eternal life. Full life, lasting life, life that can't be found anywhere else. This is the decision that Ruth has made. And so the two women, they they make their way back to Bethlehem. And when Naomi arrives in her old town, it causes a stir among the locals. Anyone who's ever lived in a small town where everyone knows everyone, you know what this is like. Everyone's amazed to see Naomi again, but it's not a happy homecoming. Ten years ago, she left with her husband and her two boys. And now she's come back without them. Only Ruth, a foreigner, is beside her. This is how Naomi describes her bitter predicament. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi feels empty, hopeless, and helpless. And I wonder if you've ever been there. Maybe you're there right now, where you feel empty, hopeless, and helpless. The good news that this story shows us is that even when we feel that way, God is not far from us and God has not left us even if we don't recognize it. You know, the irony is that as Naomi complains about her emptiness, Ruth is standing right next to her, apparently unnoticed. I mean, did you notice that no one mentions Ruth in this homecoming? The women of Bethlehem say, can this be Naomi? Maybe they're uncomfortable about the fact that Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth even says, I've come back empty without even acknowledging Ruth. Uh, sorry, Naomi says, I've come back empty without even acknowledging Ruth's presence. And yet the amazing truth is that it's actually through Ruth that God is going to transform the story of Naomi. That God is going to turn her life around. That God is going to bring her fullness once again even if she doesn't recognize it. And it's the same for you and I, because it's through the line of Ruth that God will transform the story of the world. Because from the line of Ruth will come the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, and he is the ultimate answer to our emptiness. When life is bitter for you and I, when we feel empty, hopeless, and helpless, when we wonder if God really cares, we can look to Jesus And we can know that he is the answer. He is the ultimate proof that God does love us and that God is with us. This is the way it's put in 1 John 4 verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, Jesus left behind not just Moab, Jesus left behind the glories of heaven and he came here for you and for me. And he came, why? Why? so that we might live through 
him. When life is bitter and when you feel empty, Jesus is the ultimate proof that God loves you, that God has not forgotten about you, and that God is with you. He is the one with the words of eternal life. And he invites all of us to come home with him. Where else would we go? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unending faithfulness to us. Thank you that when life is bitter and we feel empty and hopeless, you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, but you are with us. And you have proven that to us by sending your son for us. So Lord, wherever we are at this morning, if we are feeling empty, hopeless and helpless, turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And we pray this in his good name. Amen.